Tony Hines and you're listening to the Chain Reaction Podcast, all about supply chain advantage. Interesting story caught my eye this week. I suppose we've all followed the Djokovic debacle in uh, Australia. And it seems that Serbia have withdrawn Australia's license to mine for minerals, particularly lithium. And this took uh, Rio Tinto Zinc, I think, by surprise. The share price dropped, and it means, of course, that mine had been expected to generate 58,000 tonnes of refined battery-grade lithium every year, and it would power more than a million vehicles. So, it just shows you what a precarious business mining for lithium is. It's in short supply, I obviously need quite a lot of lithium to generate batteries for cars. Also in the news this week was the development of a large battery plant in the northeast of England which um, is an interesting development and it means that they'll develop capacity for the production of their own batteries and of course in the northeast we've got the Nissan plant so lots of things happening. British Volt announced plans for a gigafactory two years ago, saying it would create 3,000 jobs. The report this week saying that the government had committed about £100 million through its Automotive Transformation Fund to British Volt, which also has backing from investors Tritax and Aberdeen. That should unlock about £1.7 billion. Kwasi Kartang, the business secretary talks about reindustrialization. This, of course, is probably part of the government's levelling up programme as well. It provides the opportunity to have highly paid, well-paid, high-skilled jobs. Well, how many times can you get highly paid, well-paid, high-skilled jobs into one sentence? So it's a reinvigoration of manufacturing. Of course, there is a need for this kind of investment, and obviously with the market for electric cars set to grow, one of the problems which I've referred to in the Chain Reaction episodes over the past weeks is the shortage of uh, battery technology or locally produced um, manufacturing capacity to produce batteries for the car industry in the UK. All cars made in the UK and sold in Europe will have to contain a significant amount of UK or European parts. So that's one of the triggers that's pushed this investment up the agenda. Because you've got to have uh, UK-built components. So if cars have to be exported to Europe, it has to be made in the UK. And it's likely that this will be the first of many investments in battery production in the UK and this has got to be a good thing. The UK government has set aside more than £800 million to attract battery investment to the UK. Whether that's enough remains to be seen. But with petrol and diesel cars to be excluded by 2030, manufacturers have to switch to making electric vehicles and this means 
will need a lot of batteries. So there'll be 3,000 people at the site. And in the wider supply chain, it's expected there'll be another 5,000 jobs as a result of this investment. Nissan's partner, China Envision, AESC, said it would build an electric battery plant to supply an expansion of electric vehicles in Sunderland. So that's likely to be a further investment. So watch this space. Until recently, the only large-scale battery factory in the United Kingdom was the Envision plant in Sunderland. Envision is owned by a Chinese company, Envision, and they took over the plant at Sunderland when they bought Nissan's Sunderland plant for battery production. The annual capacity of the plant is set to rise to 38 gigawatt hours per annum. It was previously set at 11 gigawatt hours, so that's a significant increase. Battery companies are investing billions of pounds around the globe to establish facilities, and these are needed as the demand for electric cars increases. The Shanghai-based company that owns Envision has made deals with car makers to use the Sunderland plant and another one in France to supply car factories. The Sunderland Gigafactory currently has an output of 1.7 gigawatt hours and it was opened back in 2012 to build batteries for Nissan's Leaf electrical vehicle which is manufactured in the plant next door to it. Envision took over the plant in 2019 when it bought the Nissan battery company, Zhang. A plant with the capacity to produce 38 gigawatts is significant. It's estimated that the United Kingdom alone will require annual battery output of about 140 gigawatt hours by 2040 if it's to sustain a car industry. The only other plant, the one announced this week from British Volt, and that hopes to produce 30 gigawatt hours a year by 2027. So if you think about this, at the moment the projected plan is only approaching half of the needs of the UK alone. There are 247 battery plants around the world said to have a capacity to produce 4,600 gigawatts. It's an industry dominated by Asian companies. These include China's contemporary Amperex Technology Limited, South Korea's LG, and Japan's Panasonic. Europe and the United States are generally well behind the field when it comes to setting up investments in these gigafactories. Recently, however, there's been a swell of investment in Europe trying to catch up with Asian companies. So let's hope this is the first of many. Otherwise, we'll be at risk with non-resilient supply chains for the car industry. And of course, with the Brexit rules and all the requirements that that's brought into play, means that Britain has to be self-sufficient, more or less, in the production of its batteries to export to the European Union, because it has to have a high percentage of sub-assemblies produced locally. Well, I'm going to stick with electric cars and talk about another raw material that's necessary for battery technology in electric cars. Electric cars are not as clean as we might think if we look at the components that go into them. And here I want to just spend a little time to look at uh, the 
market for look at the mineral cobalt and how that's used in battery technology and where it comes from. Have you ever wondered where all the cobalt that goes into your motor vehicles and battery technology comes from? Well, 60% of the supply comes from just one country, the Democratic Republic of the Congo. In 2019, 100,000 metric tonnes of cobalt was mined and it fell in 2020 to 95,000 metric tonnes as demand slowed due to the pandemic. The top five companies producing cobalt are Glencore PLC, China Molybdenum, Fleuret Group, Vale and Gika Mines, which is state-controlled. The Democratic Republic of Congo is said to hold more than 50% of the world's cobalt reserves, which are estimated to be at 3.6 million tonnes for extraction from that country. Tesla is said to source most of its cobalt from the DRC, with minerals such as cobalt in great demand and limited supply you might expect, as has been claimed by many, that there is illegal mining, human rights issues and corruption surrounding the cobalt supply chain. Tesla vehicle batteries contain less than 5% cobalt and they are said to be looking at using alternatives to cobalt in those batteries. Panasonic makes the batteries for Tesla and they've reduced the amount of cobalt from 100% down to just 5%, and they're said to be working on making them cobalt-free in the not-too-distant future. One of the major problems with cobalt when it's mined is that there are radioactive emissions, which are cancer-causing particles and particles which may result in vision problems, vomiting, nausea, heart problems, and thyroid damage. So it's a pretty toxic combination of things. Producers are currently looking at glass and glass ceramic vanadate materials as alternatives to cobalt-based cathode materials, which have significant sourcing and supply chain risk. The high concentrations of cobalt have been linked to death of crops and worms, vital for soil fertility. So it's a, an all-round damaging metal. I suppose if you think about it, it's not just the problem of getting hold of the cobalt in the first place, but it's what you do with those batteries at the end of their life that don't harm the planet even more. So I'm guessing that the future is limited for using cobalt in large quantities if we want to protect the planet. Apple is also one of the biggest users of cobalt currently, and they too will be looking at ways to reduce cobalt in their products. In the DRC, it's uh, Gigamines, the Enterprise Generale du Cobalt, EGC, that is responsible for the production, and that's a state-owned company. At the beginning of 2020, the DRC government announced the Enterprise Generale du Cobalt, EGC, the state-owned miner, Geekermines becomes the state-controlled buyer of cobalt to purchase and market all cobalt from small-scale artisan miners, accounting for between 15 to 30% of cobalt production. That's not mined. So they're basically monopolising the, uh, the mineral. 
and this tight control of the supply chain may be necessary to control the cobalt supply so far as the state goes, but it will of course harm livelihoods of those working in that dirty business. I mean, they need some kind of alternative work that will allow them to move away from the cobalt. Cobalt is more expensive than titanium or tungsten, but it's less expensive than gold or platinum. Just to give you some indication of the price of cobalt on today's market, it stands at about $67,000 per tonne. Tin is about 39000 nickel 20000 rhodium 14000 soda ash 3200 zinc 3161 bitumen 2760 aluminium 2623 and lead at 2226 coal of course is just 155 dollars per ton iron ore just 101 so when you look at the price comparison it's quite an expensive metal but it isn't as expensive as some other metals such as platinum manganese is also replacing cobalt in batteries and elsewhere and that's much lower in cost the largest deposits of cobalt are said to be in the oceans of the world and to extract those you'd have to undertake deep sea mining but you could imagine the enormous damage that would cause to marine life back in 2006 in the drc Artisan mining of cobalt was said to be accounting for 90%. So it's fallen significantly since the state has taken control. I came across a very interesting paper published in Science Direct, and I'm going to put the full link to that paper in the show notes for this episode, because it's well worth reading if you're interested in cobalt supply chains. It's written by Susan van den Brink, Rennie Klein, Benjamin Spreker and Arnold Tucker, who are researchers at the Institute of Environmental Science at Leiden University. So the full link will be in the notes. So the dirty business of clean cars, we've summarised looking at batteries and the battery technology involved and the search for clean green energy goes on. So we look forward to innovations to lower the dirty business of electric cars. The other thing about the car industry that's striking, I mean, we don't think very often about all the particles that come off our tyres, and they end up quite often in the atmosphere or in the oceans of the world, and they have extremely damaging consequences. So the rubber materials that come off the tyres. So cars are all together and vehicles are all together a, a difficult business to keep clean. But of course we know we need those vehicles because they deliver our goods and without them we can't move supply chains. So, lots of work to be done to clean up supply chains. If you're looking for a future, then I'd suggest that you concentrate your efforts on cleaning up supply chains, or thinking of ways to clean up and improve supply chains. And I think there's a lot of money and profit to be made, as well as doing a service to the planet, and all the peoples of the world. Now, while we're talking about energy, I want to return to the biggest threat to UK energy for some time, which is the short supply of gas. 
or not so much the short supply, but the uh, price of gas. Clearly, the tensions between Russia and the Ukraine may push up gas bills, but mainly because the price of gas will rise elsewhere. It depends what happens with demand. The UK, of course, gets less than 5% of its gas from Russia. So it's not that significant in its contribution to supply in the UK. But if prices go up elsewhere or there's a shortage of supply in Europe, it will put pressure on world prices for gas. So governments shouldn't be complacent about the supply of gas. They should be taking steps to mitigate that risk. About half of the gas we use in the United Kingdom is domestic supply from the North Sea. So it's still a significant amount of gas that comes from our North Sea resource base. And the UK has been a big gas producer since the 1960s. But it's significantly lowered output in this century, since 2000. Use of gas, the demand for gas, continues to go up. Because gas is used to transform into electric power. It's not just gas itself, but it becomes electric or other forms of power generated from gas. Significant amounts of gas comes from Norway. They're the highest supplier externally of gas to the United Kingdom. And of course, the UK buys gas, LNG, that comes on ships, like the gas mainly from Russia comes on ships at the moment to the UK. And that gas is then stored until it's needed. But let's turn our attention to storage because here's the big problem. The UK has significantly less gas storage than most other European countries. If we look at terawatt hours stored by country across Europe, Italy is by far the biggest at 166 terawatt hours. Germany, 147 terawatt hours. France, 113 terawatt hours. Netherlands, 77 terawatt hours. Poland, 34. Spain, 25. And the UK, 9. So that doesn't sound good. And those figures are from September 2021 supplied by Gas Infrastructure Europe. So that doesn't sound great, does it? And if you're reliant on buying gas on spot markets, then you're going to pay the market price. And if demand goes up because there's a particularly cold winter, say, in China, where demand will go up for LNG, then the gas will go there. They'll bid up the price. And so that's what's happening to the price of gas. Gas is going up because demand's gone up. And if the weather turns cold in different parts of the globe, then it will go up. So that's why prices are rising. And that's why everybody's going to have higher energy bills during the next year. If there's mild weather, of course, then demand should fall and prices should fall back too. And if we look at the other sources of energy, they're quite low, really. When we talk about wind power, it's a very small proportion of the total energy usage in the UK. But the more of that wind power or solar power or water power that could provide electricity would be a contributor to the solution. And there definitely needs to be more investment in storage of gas. So to say that we are not secure may be a little too strong in terms of our supply because we know we can get it, but we get it at a price. And what we could do is mitigate the risk of the volatility of the market by having more storage capability. And that's where the investment should go.
and it should go there quickly. Eighty-five percent of homes in the UK use gas central heating, so there's a heavy reliance on gas, and it generates about one-third of our electricity. So it's a significant contributor to making electric. Consumers and businesses, of course, pay value-added tax on gas supply, and they also pay green levies. These are levies to ensure that uh, net-zero targets are reached when it comes to climate change by 2050. And that's something that everybody pays, including businesses and consumers, to contribute towards the cleaning and greening of energy supply. But it's no use paying all these taxes if the investment doesn't go in to change habits. The one thing that could be done on the home front is to have better insulation of properties to improve and lower the usage of gas. And when it comes to businesses, they could be more efficient in the way they use energy to produce goods. And so that's a big push that could take place inside the supply chain. I remember many years ago going to a factory where they ran kilns round the clock so that when anything was ready to go into a kiln, it could go straight in without any weight. But they saved a fortune even back then on their energy bills when they started batch producing those items. So there are probably simple things that people could think about to save energy and energy use both in business and in the home. And there needs to be greater thought to do this. There is a history of challenges and innovations taking place through having trials or competitions to find ways to do things better. One only has to look at the previous centuries when they developed railways and steam power. They were looking for more efficient steam trains and they had something in the United Kingdom called the Rainhill Trials, at which George Stevenson had his rocket as the entry, a train that could be efficient on steam doing 30 miles an hour. So we can learn from history about how to do things better, and competitions and prizes for innovation are one way to move forward. You do wish that policymakers would read history, don't you? Well, that's about it for this edition of Chain Reaction. And I hope you've enjoyed the examination of battery technology and the materials that go into battery production, lithium, cobalt, and also the revisiting of energy prices and how markets are shaping up in that area. So I'll be back next time with a new edition of Chain Reaction. Until then. I'm Tony Hines. I'm signing off. Bye for now. You've been listening to the Chain Reaction Podcast, written, presented, and produced by Tony Hines.